Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, my wife and I and our kids had the opportunity to travel to Colorado uh, for about a week and a half, and it was fantastic. Uh, uh, I guess I wanted to come back. No, I did. It was a, it was a kind of a toss-up, I guess, a little bit. Uh, no, we were, we were really grateful to be able to go, and I, I was reminded just how thankful I am for this church and thankful that, that I can go away like this, and there are so many great people serving here uh, that I just know everything is going to go great. In fact, we had, a, we had a board meeting the day after I got back, and we were going through all of the things that had gotten accomplished in the last week and a half. And I, I realized that I think more gets done when I'm gone uh, than when I'm here, so I might just take another vacation. Uh, it's coming up soon. But I am really thankful uh, for so many people in this church who really, who really stepped in when I was away. Um, I want to thank Steve Pikett, who really kind of rose to the occasion as elder, and served as shepherd for a lot of different people while I was away, uh, hospital visitation, that sort of thing, just being there uh, for them. Uh, I want to thank, of course, Felicia uh, for kind of just holding things together in the office. Her and Gail did a fantastic job. I didn't have to worry about anything uh, while I was away. Uh, Thank you to the Dietrichs for they organized the music team that was here uh, last week. They took charge of that. And then, of course, I want to give a special thank you to Randy, Randy Ringner, who preached uh, last Sunday. And Randy, I had a chance to listen to it. I shared this with you yesterday. I had a chance to listen to his message online and was incredibly blessed uh, with how I felt like the gospel really came through. It came through in your words. It came through in your delivery. And I was really blessed. So I'm incredibly thankful to you uh, for doing that. And I, and I think uh, being thankful is actually a very good segue to this passage that we're going to look at today. Because what we discover is that Paul is incredibly thankful to the people at the church in Philippi. He's incredibly thankful to them, and he's, uh, Paul's writing this letter from prison. Uh, he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a, a town in what would be modern-day Turkey, and he's writing this letter to them from prison, and he was probably, most scholars think he was in Rome in prison, some think he was in Ephesus, some think he was in Caesarea. Wherever it was, he was, he was in prison. And of course, why was Paul in prison? And, and I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase on why Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison because he was going around the Roman world saying that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. That's why Paul was in prison. Now, you know, it, it, that may sound somewhat innocuous to us because we've spiritualized the gospel so much in Western culture. But, you know, when, when Paul would refer to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that phrase wasn't used just for Jesus in that culture. 
that in fact the Roman emperor was referred to as the Lord and Savior of the world. That, that, that he had brought Pax Romana, had brought peace. And so when Paul is declaring that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world, there's a little bit of a bite here. There's a little bit of conflict because what he's saying is, uh, Caesar, you're not Lord and Savior of this world. Jesus is Lord and Savior of this world. Now, of course, Paul isn't advocating anarchy or something like that. In Romans chapter 13, he goes on and talks about how God has ordained for, in his, his case, the Roman government to be in the place that they are, and, and they should respect that authority and whatnot. So there's, there's a place for that that God has ordained. So he's not advocating anarchy here. But what he is saying is, at the end of the day, uh, Caesar, you are not Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And, and that didn't go real well. Uh, in the Roman world, and it didn't go well in the Roman world, and it doesn't go well in our world for the same reason. And here's what it is. We don't like the idea of God becoming man. We don't like the idea of God becoming man. We like the idea of man becoming God. You see, that's what was going on with the Roman emperor. The Roman emperors were were men who became godlike. And I think that that kind of reflects what is at the heart of the human condition, that is that we want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to be Lord and Savior of our own lives. We don't want God telling us what to do. We don't want God coming and becoming man. And, of course, he came as king. He came as the Messiah, which means king. We don't want God to be king. We want to be king. As Dave Matthews says, wouldn't you like to be sitting on top of the world with your legs hanging free? As Tears for Fears says, everybody wants to rule the world. As Mel Brooks says, it's good to be the king. Now, we don't like the idea of God coming to earth as king. We like the idea idea of us, man, being king and becoming like God. And so Paul's going around announcing, no, no, actually God has become man. He has become king. He has claimed rulership, lordship over the world. And that doesn't go well, so he gets thrown in prison. And so he's writing to the people in Philippi, and he's thanking them. He's, he's thanking them, and the reason why is because, well, there's a couple reasons, as we'll see, but one of the reasons he's thanking them is because prison in the Roman world wasn't the same as prison today. Uh, Paul's meals would not have been provided for uh, in prison. If he wanted to eat, he needed to have friends who would come and, and bring supplies for him. They weren't just going to provide it for him, and so it seems that the, the church in Philippi, and others supported him. And so he's thanking them for their provision while he's in prison. But, but we notice in these verses right here that there, he narrows the focus on what he's thankful for. We see this here in verse 5, verse 4 and 5. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. He's thankful for the partnership that he has with the people in Philippi. I think it's interesting that he uses this this phrase, this category of relationship, partnership, that that's the first way in which he refers to his relationship with the church in Philippi is as partners, uh, not as friends. You see, later on throughout the book, he's going to refer to them as his friends. Uh, He's going to refer to them as his brothers, as his brothers and sisters, and and that was radical. That, that kind of blew people's minds in the Roman world. Because in the Roman world, you didn't call people brother and sister who weren't blood-related to you. That was just weird. And, 
And so in the Roman, or in the, in the early Christian communities, you'd have these crazy communities where you had incredibly wealthy people and incredibly poor people. Not only were they uh, separated by socioeconomic status, but they were separated by race, and they would call each other brother and sister. Because the gospel had just sort of leveled the playing field. All of these, these things in our society, these divisions that, that divide us, the gospel said, no, no, you're... <laughs> You're kind of all the same. You're all in the same position no matter who you are. And so, so they, as, they would, as they would unite themselves around the cause of Christ, they would call themselves brothers and sisters, and they would be friends, close friends. And so we find that throughout the book of Philippians. But it's interesting that at the very beginning, he uses this other category. He refers to them as partners. And, and there is a difference between a partnership and a friendship. Isn't there? And here's what the difference is. A friendship is a relationship that simply exists to benefit each other. That's what a friendship, the the, the relationship is all about benefiting one another. That's a friendship. But a partnership is a relationship which has a goal, has something outside of just one another that, that they're aiming to achieve together. Now, the difference between a friendship and a partnership is the difference between the TV show Cheers and the TV show 24. Right? Cheers, story about a, a bunch of guys who hang out at a bar, and they're friends, and, and you know, it's sometimes you want to go, or everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. It's all about friendship, and when, and when Norm would walk in the, in the bar, everybody would turn and say, Norm, right? And everybody knew him. And, 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 but the relation, I mean, they never accomplished anything. You ever thought about that? I mean, they never actually do anything, right? Because the, the whole show is based, it's just on friendship, on, on benefiting one another. But in the show 24, the relationship is based on, and I haven't really watched 24 that much, so I don't know if Jack Bauer is friends with his partners. We'll assume, I really don't know. But I assume there's a friendship level there to a certain extent. But what actually unites them is partnership. I'm getting some, maybe he doesn't have any friends. Is that right? I don't know. Anyway, but the, the basis of their relationship is a partnership. They have a goal they're trying to accomplish. In this case, they're trying to stop terrorism. There's the difference between partnership and, and friendship. So I think it's interesting here that, 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 that Paul refers to his relationship with the Philippians as a partnership, that that seems to be almost even more fundamental to how he sees them. And my prayer for our church is that we would increasingly move from friendship to partnership. That we would increasingly move from being good friends and family and being community-oriented, right? That's one of our core values, to be community-oriented. And that's really all about, about friendship. In fact, we, we've spent the last year and a half or so really, I think, focusing on being community-oriented and, and trying to build and establish friendships. That's when we launched our community group ministry. That was one of the, the main goals. And, and a lot of you who said, you know, we asked you, why did you join a community group? And you just said, I'm looking for friends, or I want to rekindle old friendships. I, I, I need friendship. I need community. And, and, and that was what we've been focusing on for the last year and a half. And that's incredibly important. But I think what Paul shows us here is that we need to be able to move from friendship to partnership. That we need to be able to move beyond just ourselves. So, so we have the core value of being community-oriented. But then we also have the core value of being outwardly-faced. 
outwardly face, that, that in fact the church doesn't exist for itself. That to be the people of God, actually what it means to be the people of God is to be called to be light in this, light in this world. We, we saw this in, in our Love Your Neighbor series a few weeks ago when we looked at the question of who, right? We looked at loving your neighbor, commanded to love our neighbors, and, and then we asked the, one of the questions we asked, well, who? Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I'm supposed to love? And what we saw is that our immediate priority is our friends and our family. That's our immediate priority is to love our friends and our family, but that's not our ultimate priority. Our ultimate priority is actually to love those outside of our community of faith, outside of our friendships and our families, that that we need to be community-oriented. That's a community-oriented is our immediate priority, but our ultimate priority is to become more and more outwardly outwardly faced. And, and, And that's my prayer is that for our church, we would begin to move that way. You know, there's a... Proverbs 11.10 is a great verse. It says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Now, okay, what is it referring to? Who are the righteous people? Okay, the righteous people are the people of God. That's what that means. The righteous people are the people of God. Now, if you're visiting today and you're not used to all of this, that may sound incredibly arrogant, Right? Oh, you, you people of God, you think you're so righteous. But let me explain to you what the Christian understanding of what it is to be righteous. Uh, you see, it, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. To be right, the righteous ones doesn't mean that we're the perfect ones. In fact, I, I, one of the things I appreciated the most about Randy's sermon last week is he talked about the difference between being blameless and sinless. You see, as Christians... We can be blameless, but we're certainly not sinless. Blameless is a matter of, of, of our relationship with God being right. That our relationship has been restored, and so the blame is, is gone. And, and that's the same thing. Being righteous means that you're in a right standing with God. You're in the right position with God. And at the heart of the Christian faith is that the only way you get right with God is by His grace. I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. This is a teaser for what's coming in just a minute. The only way you get right with God is by His grace. It's not that we think that we're sinless or anything like that. It's just that we come before God and in humility we ask for His grace and that makes us right before God. And then that is what marks out the people of God. So Proverbs says that people of God, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And what that's saying is that when the people of God are being the people of God, when they prosper, they aren't the only ones that benefit from it. When they prosper, everybody in the community benefits from it. You see, when when the people of God are being the people of God, everybody else in the community looks around and says, boy, I hope that they prosper because it's going to benefit us. I hope things go well at Rivervale Community Church. I really do. I don't really know if I believe any of the stuff that they say, but I just know that when things go well for them, things start to go well for us because they just just bless us. So that's what happens when a a church moves from simply being community-oriented to being outwardly faced, moving from friendship to partnership, that there is this goal that goes beyond ourselves. And you know what? This attitude of partnership is not something that is new to this church. Those of you who have been here for many years, some of you may actually notice that I've actually preached on this passage before in this church. 
this Sunday is actually a very special Sunday for Laura and I. Because after this Sunday, we will have completed five years of ministry here in Riverdale. That it was five years ago on Monday or Tuesday that we moved here and were called here. It was five years ago, actually, next Sunday that I preached on this very passage. And I've been reflecting on the last five years. And I've been reflecting on when we when we moved here or when we were in the process of seeking God's calling and, and I came, we came up here for a candidating weekend. And I remember sitting down with the men of the church, like every single one of them was there. And we just sat down and, and they, they asked me questions. And, and usually, you know, when a new pastor comes in, a lot of times the kind of questions that people, the uh, pastor will get are things like, you know, what are you going to try to change? You know, this is how we've been doing it and we like it this way and we don't want things to change. And, and honestly, I was kind of expecting that those would be the kinds of questions that I would get. That's not at all what transpired. There's one question that was asked. It was simply this. How can you help us reach our community? How can you help us reach out to those who who, who aren't? And that's all that we talked about. And and that was when I started to sense, I think maybe God is, is calling us here. You see, that attitude of partnership is not something new to this church. And I want to make sure we don't lose that. I want us to become great friends. I want us to be community-oriented. But let's remember what it means to be the people of God is to be outwardly faced that it's a matter of partnership. What is this partnership all about? What is the goal of this partnership? Paul tells us here again, verse 5, reading the whole sentence. From verse 4, in all of my prayers... For all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel. Paul realizes that this this whole partnership, it's all about the gospel. That everything we do, everything in our church is to be centered around the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, there's a number of ways in which I could articulate the gospel, but Paul actually does it for us right here. He, he articulates the gospel right in these very verses. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Grace and and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's doing something with this greeting in, in letters written in the Greek world. Paul's writing in Greek. It was common there would be some sort of opening greeting. And normally the word that would be used is the word karin, which means greetings. But Paul, ever being so clever, has actually changed what is usually the word karin and has changed it to the word karis which means grace. He's taken that that normal way of greeting people and changed it to the word grace and then added peace. And then, of course, adding grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is that we can receive grace and peace because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is that we can receive grace. In other words, that... 
our relationship with God can be restored, not on the basis of anything that we do. That's not what restores our relationship. What restores our relationship is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that on the cross he shows us grace, right? What does it mean to show somebody grace? It means just, just you know, you just kind of deal with their stuff. Just show them grace. You just, just kind of deal with it, right? You see, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He, he just dealt with it. He said, you, you sin, you go the wrong way, you, but I love you, and I'm just, I'm just going to take it. That's the heart of the gospel, that through the cross, now by his grace, we can be restored in relationship. And, and then from grace, this leads to peace. What is peace? Well, we don't, peace, the English word peace doesn't really capture the biblical concept of peace. Pyrene in Greek or shalom in the Hebrew, it doesn't really capture it. What is peace? Peace is things being the way they are supposed to be. Peace means just the things the way they are supposed to be. That by God's grace, we can enter into a relationship with God and And things can begin to become the way they are supposed to be. God's ultimate plan in the gospel is to bring peace to the whole world, to to, to bring renewal to the whole world. Even in Romans 8, it's like like even even all of creation, like creation's crying out to be redeemed for peace, that there's a brokenness even in in creation itself, and that it's crying out to, to to be healed. And that because Jesus rose from the grave, you see, he's conquered the ultimate brokenness. The ultimate out of jointness, that there's nothing that is more not the way it's supposed to be than death. That's the ultimate not supposed to be that way. And through the resurrection of Jesus, you see, we have hope here that even that has been conquered. You see, this is why there is no other religion that, that, that can offer us the hope that Christianity does. Because, you know, Jesus tells a lot of parables, you know, a lot of like fictional stories meant to, to make a point. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not a parable. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical event that shows that in Jesus Christ, God really has conquered death and that our hope is in that and that no matter how far we have turned from him, no matter how messed up our lives are, no matter how broken we are, we can turn to him and by his grace, we can begin to enter into a relationship with him and begin to experience renewal and restoration. Paul's saying that's what our partnership is all about. It's about the gospel. It's about living out and proclaiming the gospel. And there's a number of ways in which we can get distracted from the gospel. Paul actually alludes to it in Philippians 3. In chapter 3, he warns the Philippians about how they can get distracted from the gospel. And there's kind of two ways in which you can get distracted from the gospel. You can get distracted to the left, and you can get distracted to the right. First, you can get distracted to the left. What does that look like? Well, that's when we get distracted by our own self-indulgence. In other words, we, we start to think that life isn't found in God, life isn't found in the Creator, Life is found in his creation. 
So rather than worshiping the creator, we worship creation. We start worshiping. In other words, we, say, we don't really want you, God. We just want the things that you can give me. We want the things of this world. And so this is when you start saying, you know what? Uh, my life is going to be found in my financial prosperity. And you get distracted. Like that, that's what's going to fulfill me. That's what's going to give me life is, you know, if I can get that, if I can get that, uh, that, that promotion, uh, if I can get that job, and, and then I can get that house, and then I can get that car, and, and, and then I can get this, my retirement with this standard of living. And, and if I can get that, right, see, then I'll be satisfied. It's forgetting, no, that the life isn't found in self-indulgence. It's found in God himself. That that's where life is. So we get distracted to the left, self-indulgence. We can get distracted to the right. In self-righteousness. And this is when we start saying that our worth and our value and our reputation is all based on what I achieve. My worth, my value, my identity is all wrapped up in what I achieve. And so, so now it's, you know, it's about getting that promotion, not necessarily for the money, though that's it too. You're kind of self-indulgent and self-righteous. But it's really more just because then you can tell people, this is your job, this is your position, and then people will think well of you. So you seek your worth and your identity in your career success. Maybe you don't even like driving a, a nice car, but people think you're cool if you have one, right? So that, that's self-righteousness, that your worth and your value is, is in that. Your self-righteousness can be in anything. Your self-righteousness can be in, in whether or not people think you're a good parent or not. So your worth and your value. And so, and so then if your kids start messing up, well, then it's not even just about your kids. What are people going to think of me? Because your worth and your value is all wrapped up in that. Self-righteousness can come in a lot of different ways. Of course, then there's religious self-righteousness. And this is where you think that your worth and your value is caught up in, in how often you go to church and how much you give and, and how much that you serve. And, and if you do all of these things, then that will establish uh, your worth and your value and your, your righteousness. Right? So, so there's religious self-righteousness. There's just moralistic self-righteousness. You think your worth and your value comes from the fact that, that you, know, you avoid doing the things that people shouldn't do and you're pretty good at maintaining your sin. And, and of course, what happens with this whole self-righteousness is that it, it leads to one of two things. Either it leads to sort of judgmental uh, arrogance where you're actually achieving your success, you know, whether it's uh, uh, business success or parenting success or religious success or moral success, and you're actually achieving. And so you start, you know, looking around at other people who aren't doing as well as you and you start looking down on them. You start thinking that they are less than you. Of course, if you're not doing so well, what does that lead to? Insecurity and guilt. You're not being as successful. You're not being, you keep messing up. You keep sitting. Right? And so it's, it, you oscillate between this sort of arrogance and this, this insecurity. Why, you've been distracted from the gospel. It's your worth, your reputation, your, your value. It, it isn't in what you achieve. It's it's in what Christ has achieved. That what it means to be a Christian, Paul talks about being baptized into Christ Jesus, being united with Christ Jesus. He's just trying to use whatever language he can to communicate this idea that, that, that who Christ is is actually what God sees when he looks at us when we profess faith in him. 
He looks at his worth and his value and his reputation. He says, he says that's, that's who you are. You're baptized with. This whole imagery of baptism is about dying to yourself. So it's this imagery of, of going down in, in, into the water, into the grave, and, and dying to yourself and being raised with Christ as a new person, a new identity. This summer, as a, as a side note, we're looking to do a baptism service. We're looking to do it sometime in August. And I would encourage you to think about it, if, if you haven't been baptized, to consider whether or not you would like to be baptized. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years but never been baptized. Maybe just recently you, you're, you're coming to faith. And, and, and you just this is that point where you know, I just need to, I want to make that decision and really surrender my life. I want to find my worth in him. And I want to encourage you to think about that. And if you're interested in getting baptized or you just want to hear more about it because some people are kind of weirded out by it, you know, getting wet in front of a bunch of people, it's just kind of weird. But, but, but if you want to, I would love to talk with you about it. We're going to do that sometime in August. And, and again, the whole thing is it's, it's, it's about finding your worth and your value and, and your identity in Christ. But you see, we get so distracted. We get so distracted and what Paul's reminding us is no, no, no. It's all about the gospel. That's what our partnership is all about. And we find throughout Paul's writings that Paul just bleeds the gospel. In the leadership meetings that we had, uh, have had once a month, the first three months, I went through a series called Bleed, and we just looked at these core values of our church. And we talked about the difference between believing something and bleeding it. You believe something, meaning you sign off to it. You, you agree with it. You don't disagree with it. Okay, that's fine. I believe that. But bleeding, it means it just comes out in everything that you do. It comes out in every interaction, every relationship that you have. You just bleed these values. And, and what we find is that Paul absolutely bleeds the gospel. I mean, look how he opens his letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's not like Paul just decided, you know, I think maybe I'll, I'll start off the letter this time this way. You realize that in every letter, Paul basically says the same thing. Let me just read you the greetings from a couple of letters. Here's, here's Romans. See if you notice a, a theme. Here's Romans, uh, the beginning of Romans. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here's uh, 1 Corinthians Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's 2 Corinthians. Uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and here's, uh, here's Galatians. He's writing to the church in Galatia. And what does he say? He says, ah, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then in uh, Ephesians, one of my favorite books, uh, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he just bleeds this. Paul said, this, this is what our partnership is all about. About living at and proclaiming the grace and the peace that comes to us through Lord Jesus Christ. Returning to our passage, Paul is... I mean, really, he could have just written the, you know, the greeting and then just been done. <laughs> what more does he really need to say at this point? 
But he's actually building to something. He's, he's, he's taking it and he's contextualizing it to the situation that he's encountering with the people in Philippi. And it's actually all building towards verse 6. And verse 6 is really the climax of this passage. Some scholars even think verse 6 really just summarizes what the whole letter of Philippians is about. Again, beginning in verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, it seems what's happening is that Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and and, and things maybe aren't going so great in Philippi. Maybe not going like they once did. You read about in Acts chapter 16 where Paul goes and plants the church in Philippi. And, and, and you see that, you know, when, when it first started, it was just, I mean, stuff was just happening. Like the Lord was just moving and people were coming to know the Lord. And, and it was just, there was just a spiritual vibrancy to the church in Philippi. But it seems at this point that maybe things have, have kind of kind of calmed down, and, and, and now they're starting to get some division, and there's some conflict, and it's just kind of dying a little bit, you know. It started out great, but now it's gotten to this place that's not so wonderful, and I want to ask you, do you ever find yourself in that same situation? Maybe you're in that situation today. Maybe you can remember times when there was a vibrancy to your faith, but now it just seems kind of dead, and, and, and you find yourself you're struggling with things that you'd hoped you'd, you'd be through, but you, you're still struggling with it. And I, and I think what Paul wants to say is, look, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That it's not easy, that it's a struggle, that, you know, when, when you come to embrace the gospel and, and, and you, you come to acknowledge that with your mind and you come to realize that, you know, it, it, it takes some time and some work for that to be able to work its way through your flesh. I mean, if you've been angry about something for 20 years, and for 20 years you've just been reinforcing that anger, you know, that, that, you know, even like, honestly, biologically and chemically, like there's stuff going on there that has to be reversed. And it can be reversed by the gospel when you begin to change your perspective, but, but it's going to take, you know, taking that anger and those relationships and, and really submitting it to the gospel and, and, and recognizing that sanctification is a process it's a difficult process of, of, of constantly applying the gospel to every situation and realizing it's, it's, not, it's, not, instant, it's not instant holiness. It's not instant deliverance. It's, it's, it, there can, there, sometimes there is, but there are often times when it's got it's to be worked out. You've got to allow the gospel. You know, sometimes I think some of us, we come to know Christ and we come to know the gospel, but there are entire areas of our lives which we never really submit to the gospel. We never really process through this particular relationship or this particular issue in light of the gospel, and that just sort of stays dormant, right? And Paul's saying, you, you, you stay focused on the gospel. It's going to take time. There's a process. But he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We can apply this to us as Christians individually, but of course, Paul's primary focus here is on the church, the Philippi. And he's saying, God began a good work in, in your church, and he's going to carry it on to completion. 
And I believe that as I look at our church, we see that, that God is doing a good work in this church. God is doing a good work in this church, and I think, I think we see it, and, and, and many of us who have been here for a number of years, we see that something's different now, that God, it, it's not that we're really, I'm not doing anything different, it's just that God is, is doing something different, and, and we see that happening, and we, we, we see God bringing change into people. Those of you who have been a part of the community group celebrations have heard some of the testimonies of some of the things that, that God is doing in people's lives. And some of the things people have said, I, I just I shared this at our meeting a while back. Um, some of the things that people have said, l- listen to this. I have never had such deep friendships as the ones I've developed in my community group. I've never had such a tight community of prayer. We are always contacting each other during the week for prayer. I have never grown so much in my relationship with God as I have in the last year with my community group. God is doing a good work in this church. And I want to encourage you to to, to get on board with what God's doing here. I, I shared in October at our annual meeting that I think a good analogy for our church is that our church is like a pregnant woman. And we've been pregnant for five years at least. That's a long time. And this new thing, this new life, this new good work that God is doing in this church has been growing for the last five years or so. And, and, and it seems like we're getting to this point where it's, it's, it's time to give birth to this new thing. And I said last October that 2015, that this year would be the year that we give birth to this. And as I assess where we are right now, we are in labor. We're in labor, and honestly, it could be a long one. You know, some labors are quick. This, this could be a long one, and sometimes it's hard, and, and it's difficult, and there are challenges, and it can be one of the most painful things, right, apparently. But it gives birth to this incredibly beautiful thing, and, and, and that's where we are right now. That God, and, and, and when we give birth to this, when God gives birth, or however the analogy works, gives birth to this new thing, you see, that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the good work that God wants to do in this church. If I can end by just switching the analogy a little bit here. And I feel like I'm in good company switching the metaphor because Paul does it all the time. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the second coming. And he uses the analogy of a royal procession, uh, a thief in the night, and a pregnant woman all in the space of four verses. So I feel like I'm in good company kind of switching it up here. I feel like our church, this is a good summer analogy, is like a surfer. And maybe, maybe you've been to the beach yet. I don't know if you have, but, you know, it's a good time to talk about surfing. What does a surfer do? A surfer, you know, gets out there in the water and waits for that wave to come. Waits for, that, for God to send that wave. And when that huge wave comes, what does the surfer do? They, like, do everything that they can to get on board. Friends, I believe we are in a season where God is sending a big wave. And this is not a time to disengage. This is not a time to just sit on your board. This is a a time to give everything that we can to to jump on this wave that God is sending. So I I want to encourage you to to, to really think about engaging more, to, to, to throw yourself more into your community group. If you're not in a community group, we would love to get you involved in one. If you're already in one, 
throw yourself more into that. I would encourage you to look for ways in which you can serve, that, that as we give birth to this new thing, there's all kinds of strange things happening, and, and we need volunteers, we need help. And I would encourage you to throw yourself into this, because God is sending us this wave. God has begun a good work in this church, and he will carry it on to completion. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for the good work that you're doing in this church. Centered in the gospel, Lord Jesus, as you begin to work in our hearts, begin to draw us to you. Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray that we would not be distracted to the left or to the right. But that we would submit ourselves entirely to you. That we would humble ourselves before your grace Receive your grace, receive your peace, and God, that you would begin to bring change and and begin to bring growth that perhaps we'd never imagined. God, we are so excited and blessed by what you're doing, and God, we just want to be a part of it. God, we pray that you would use us to reach this community with the hope that is found in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.